Good morning, and welcome to Cox Media Houston's Public Affairs Show, FYI. My name is Susie Hanks. Lung cancer is the number one cause of cancer deaths worldwide, and we cannot win the fight against cancer without winning the fight against tobacco. N-Tobacco is one of several initiatives in the cancer prevention and control platform of the Moonshots program at MD Anderson Cancer Center. And so with us today, we have Dr. Ernest Hawk, who is the Vice President and Division Head of Cancer Prevention and Population Sciences at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Good morning, Dr. Hawk. Good morning. And Jennifer Kofer, who is the director of N Tobacco, the N Tobacco Moonshot. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I think a lot of people were uh, listening to um, uh, President Obama's uh, State of the Union address this year and heard the Cancer Moonshot um, Initiative, which kind of, you know, of course, played right on the Houston and the moonshot, and uh, that's kind of the next thing with with, uh, Joe Biden. But a lot of people don't realize that MD Anderson had kind of the cancer moonshot program already in effect, and that's what this is all kind of based on. Isn't this true? Yes, that is right. Dr. DiPino, our president, uh, shortly after he joined our faculty, announced a moonshot program, which is essentially an effort to bring the entire campus together around the idea of, uh, of evidence-based actions that we can take to make a difference. That combined with research to create kind of a virtuous cycle of endeavor both around discovery and then translation of discovery out to action. The really unique part about MD Anderson's program is that it extends beyond uh, applications in the clinic, caring for people that make their way into our institution, into a broader context of cancer control that's attempting to change the environment. Um, and tobacco is one of the first things that he hit on. Yeah, that's one of the, I guess, no-brainers. But uh, what what I really, um, what it, it was fascinating to me that a lot of people think of MD Anderson Cancer Center, and you think, yes, you go there when you get cancer, right. you get treatment. But this is kind of a, this is a shift in philosophy that happened a few years ago. Yeah, this is an effort to not only maintain the excellence that we've always had in terms of caring for patients with cancer, but this is really taking the approach to cancer um, from a different perspective, from a prevention perspective, attempting to stop the disease and risk factors that lead to it before they ever occur. And it's, and it's um, not serving our clinical population of patients so much as it is the surrounding community through uh, evidence-based actions in public policy, public and professional education, as well as services that are delivered not in our clinics, but in the surrounding environment, in the community. And so at, at first, uh, several of the moonshot initiatives were identified, the different kinds of cancer, the different things that could be kind of, um, I guess, focused on. It has grown, but one of the initial ones is end tobacco. Yes. As you mentioned, lung cancer remains the biggest single uh, cause of death due to cancer in our country and globally around the world. And tobacco is the leading risk factor uh, for that condition. And so it was a natural thing for the institution to involve itself in. And, you know, 20 years ago, if you would have come to MD Anderson and asked, what do we think of tobacco? We would have given you all the appropriate responses based on the evidence at the time. But what this does is move us from a passive context into a much more active and uh, outward, outwardly actionable effort. Yeah. Um, tobacco is, uh, darn it, it's just one of the most obvious t- uh, causes of cancer, and yet it's still such a rampant issue, um, and it's so devastating for people who get cancer from smoking. This is, can be one of the uglier cancers, can't it? 
Definitely. It's, um, you know, it's one of the things that attracted me into oncology. Both of my grandparents died due to tobacco-related illnesses, and in that case, both lung cancers. Uh, and tobacco is related now to some, you know, 15 different types of cancer, affecting 15 different organs. Uh, so it really is an obvious place to start. Well, when you think of smoking and, and cancer, you think automatically lung cancer. But there are what are the other kinds of cancer? that uh, Various types of head and neck cancer uh, of your tongue, uh, your uh, esophagus, the swallowing tube that connects uh, your mouth to your stomach, uh, gastric cancer, stomach cancer, um, a whole variety of other sites, bladder cancer, for example, cervical cancer in women. All of those are affected by tobacco and even colorectal cancer, which has really been associated uh, definitively just over the last decade or so. So uh, tobacco is a huge public health scourge relating to all those different types of cancer, but of course, importantly, also cardiovascular disease, heart attacks and strokes, as well as even diabetes now. Really? And, and d- did you mention bladder cancer yes. in, in, in there too? Because uh, I know personally, I have a family member who's who was a lifelong smoker and they all of a sudden have, ta-da, bladder cancer. And, they're, and, and they were shocked to, knew, to know that that was linked to the, the smoking. Isn't this, it, isn't this crazy how this has been out there for so long? This is what people have been told over and over and over again that it, it's, it's going to cause cancer. And yet when they get it, they're surprised. <laughs> well, yeah, it's uh, it's not as though people should be surprised. I guess you're 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 always surprised when it happens to you or a loved one. Uh, but yes, the evidence has been growing, very compelling for many many years. Of course, the public awareness of it really started with the first Ger- Surgeon General's report back in the '60s. And but it is a kind of an addictive process. Uh, nicotine is a very powerful addictive substance, and so we think of tobacco. And helping people quit tobacco now as more or less a chronic relapsing condition. Because of that addiction and the power it holds over individuals, it's far beyond a habit. Yeah. Um, we are talking about the End Tobacco Program, which is one of the uh, parts of the Moonshot Program at MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Jennifer Kofer, you're the director of End Tobacco. Tell me how, how the whole End Tobacco thing started. It's a great question. So MD Anderson was very forward-thinking in creating the In Tobacco Initiative for the Cancer Center. Uh, For many, many years, the normal tobacco control advocates have been the Lung Association, the Cancer Society, the Heart Association, Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, and other um, nonprofits devoted to tobacco control. So I think MD Anderson stood up at the appropriate time to be a new voice in the landscape nationally of tobacco control as a cancer center, very non-traditional partner to weigh in on policy issues, but they are the most respected as the physicians who treat, as the researchers who can find cures, or as the prevention specialist. And it's been a, a nice addition into the tobacco control landscape for MD Anderson to join and encourage other cancer centers to do the same in their, in their hometowns across the nation. So if you can describe to me when this was first um, identified as an initiative, what, what happened? Sure. I'll um, turn this over to Dr. Hawk, who <laughs> yeah. started this in 2014, and I was hired uh, just last year to uh, start and jump into the initiative. But he knows the beginnings and the and the coming Thanks. together well, with a plan. Yeah. It, as, as we talked about earlier, it was an obvious place to begin as the leading cause of cancer-related death and uh, preventable mortality in the country. The challenge was what can a cancer center bring to the table that all these other excellent uh, government and nonprofit groups were already doing? We were motivated because of the patients we care for. Every day we take care of patients and their families who are really devastated by tobacco. 
and therefore it creates great motivation. So that's kind of the why we moved in this direction. What we did is get together all the tobacco experts on campus, those who care for patients, those who do the research studies, those who are active in public policy. We met over a series of meetings over about a six-month period and um, decided for ourselves what MD Anderson should do. And the way we um, went about that thought process is taking a look at the evidence base that had already been created and codified by organizations like the CDC or the World Health Organization. There was already a lot that was known about tobacco. And what we did together is take a look at that body of evidence and decide about the most impactful actions we thought the, uh, a cancer center or MD Anderson specifically could take to try to bolster those individual efforts. And so we, you know, as I mentioned, met for quite a while thinking about which actions we should would be uh, most primed for. And then we created a unifying document that really lays out the overall strategy. We have three primary goals. First is to decrease tobacco use in the public. Secondly, to decrease secondhand exposure so that those who don't smoke but are still affected uh, by the environment, uh, we can decrease their risk. And third, to try to help patients who smoke stop or increase the number of quit attempts. So it's a relatively uh, ambitious, comprehensive program, but it's really oriented around those three relatively simple goals. So let's talk about the first goal, uh, to reduce tobacco use by, I guess, children, teenagers, and adults. Let's let's talk about that. This is something that, boy, the, I, I think the first time when you realize your kid is smoking um, is is pretty devastating to to a parent or 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 somebody involved in in, in your kid's life. The first time that you see your kid uh, or or that you hear about your kid with a cigarette, it's 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 really tough. How do kids start? I think kids start in many different ways, from um, media exposure to um, older um, brothers and sisters who might have it in their possession, and they're hanging out with the older crowd. Um, to peer pressure, of course, their own peer groups. So it's really the influence of in, in their surroundings. If they live in certain neighborhoods, there's definitely science and, and proof that shows there's more advertising um, from the corner store to um, their school to where they walk home. So there's lots of different influences with um, how kids start, um, which is where some of our initiatives are going to um, raise the age of purchase uh, for the for tobacco products to 21 years of age because we do know that science shows us if we can increase the age of 21, we have kids that are known to start before 18 that will never start. Um, so we have lots of science. We can dive into that topic if you'd like. Yeah, you know, it's um, I, I guess you don't hear about somebody picking up a cigarette and starting when they're in their 30s or <laughs> or anything, no. right? You, yeah, when, most, yeah. Uh, I think the statistic is 88% of folks who smoke have started when in their youth. Before they're 21. Yeah. So tell me about that, Jennifer. Sure. Um, 18 and 19-year-olds are usually the ones that started smoking at 16 and 17. So if we um, know that we can increase the age of 21, that means we will keep the tobacco products out of the hands of the 18, 19-year-olds, 17-year-olds who may still be in high school and still be influencing their peers. Um, we know that California and Hawaii have passed this within the past year. Over 150 different cities across the nation have passed this law to increase the age of purchase. Um, but we know that we'll see um, a smoking rate decrease by 12%. Um, we can see almost 250,000 fewer premature deaths. And we're talking about teenagers today that are going to be adults later on. These are the, the science and the numbers that show us by raising the age of purchase. 
we can see almost 45,000 fewer deaths from lung cancer and overall reduce smoking-related deaths by 10% if we can increase the age to 21 years old. So what are we doing to increase the age? We are educating. (laughs) Um, We're educating the community as we go out in the public. We're educating decision makers, state and local. Um, This is a topic going on nationwide um, for many of our tobacco control advocates, public health advocates, as just one more thing we can do outside of smoke-free or tax or prevention um, to talk about changing um, or reducing kids' use and then helping adults quit as well. And the most effective strategies are usually a combination of of approaches. Uh, So you need public policies that are supportive of those goals. Secondly, you need, uh, again, educational efforts of both the general public but also providers uh, so that they're more able to assist and serve. And then finally, you need kind of services delivered to where people live in ways that they can can, uh, identify and connect to. And so uh, around most any one of these topics, there will be activities in all three of those domains uh, working together to try to create the most effective uh, change. And so give me an example of some of those things. Sure. So uh, around the, the, the issue that we started with, which is decreasing tobacco use, we've got things like the Tobacco 21 initiative that we think is important for Texas, just as the rest of the country. So that's an example of a policy initiative. Um, secondly, we need to change the culture, and you do that through other sorts of policy actions. So at Anderson, for example, we become a tobacco-free campus back in 1989. We took that to the next level and became a tobacco-free hiring institution just a couple of years ago. So it's your, again, embedding in the minds of folks that this is important, something to pay attention to, and you're setting up systems that really value health and uh, diminish the uh, the ability and the opportunity to be exposed to tobacco. What was that like in uh, instituting that? What kind? What? Uh, well, you know, the, both both actions were controversial, as I understand it. Now, I've been at Anderson for eight years, so I wasn't around, unfortunately, back in 1989 when the institution decided to become tobacco-free campus. Um, but every time there there's uh, you know it's a, it's a big change and it changes the culture, as I mentioned, and so people notice it. And they take exception to it many times. And I was told that's what happened in 1989. We were one of the first cancer centers in the nation to adopt that policy. And now, fortunately, many others have followed suit. Um, I was around for the tobacco-free hiring uh, question, and that was very debatable. Frankly, there's less evidence that you're going to make a positive impact. Uh, you, You know that it'll be good for the individuals involved, and you know that it'll be good for the institution because... Tobacco-related health concerns are one of the biggest charges to insurers or uh, or uh, state institutions like MD Anderson. Um, so um, you, you know that there's going to be some degree of concern and pushback, and certainly we experience that. But by working through a process, thinking carefully, always keeping our eye on the helpful intention of what it was we're trying to do, to improve MD Anderson's service to its patients in the community by essentially setting a high standard for itself, we had the fortitude to move ahead. Lots of questions and concerns that occurred along the way, of course. Um, You know, would we be in a situation where we'd have to turn down a job offer to a smoking Nobel laureate, for example? (laughs) It really challenges the institution to think in creative ways about, well, is it willing to go to that extent? We were, I'm happy to say. A couple of things that we learned in the process. First is people were concerned about the test we would use. 
And so what we did is make uh, applicants um, uh, applicants are, are asked to give a urine sample we, that we test for codeine, one of the byproducts or metabolic products of tobacco. So that's a one-level screen. But, of course, that can't tell whether you're smoking or whether you're taking nicotine replacement therapy trying to get off of tobacco. So that challenge, you know, people brought that forward to us. Hmm, how are we going to solve that? So we decided to create a two-step process where next we would test for anabasing. That's a tobacco-specific alkaloid that's only found in tobacco products, not in nicotine replacement. So that's one thing that we did. We created a novel kind of two-step testing process. Next, rather than having this stand alone, we embedded it in our overall drug screen for entry into the institution that's been going on for years, of course, and that is very common in employment. So that, that was one thing we learned. The second was, well, what if someone screens positive? Do you just cut them loose and they're on their own? Um, we decided that wasn't that didn't fit with the culture of our institution. And so what we did is for anyone who screens positive and is using tobacco products, regardless of whether they declared that or not, we offer them free entry into our tobacco treatment program, which is really a stellar program, one of the best in the country, with success rates on the order of 35 45% after the uh, three- to six-month period of treatment. So that's uh, really an incredible program, difficult to gain access to anything of that quality outside of our institution, I can tell you, particularly in the Houston area. And so um, we offered free entry into that for anyone who failed. They're not our employees yet. We're not, quote, responsible for them. But nevertheless, it's the right way for the institution to try to help those folks deal with their um, tobacco situation. And so those two things really brought the community on our campus together. And people were no longer questioning it, but uh, quite strongly endorsing of the policy. Um, we're still gathering data in terms of the impact that it has, but so far it seems not to have hurt our hiring at all. And it certainly sends the right message to the community, to other cancer centers. We've had uh, several other institutions, even within UT system, ask for insights into how we developed that policy and how we put it in place because they're hoping to follow suit, which is exactly where we wanted to be. This is a very customized quitting program, um, and and can you tell me a little bit about that? How many people are participating in that, and what kind of success have you been having with that? So the tobacco treatment program is led by um, Paulson Sirapini and Mahar Karam Haj, two experts, one behavioral scientist, the other one a psychiatrist, addiction psychiatrist. And the program was developed in 2007. It's a free program to our patients, their family members, because it's hard to quit smoking if you have family members who continue to smoke. So treating the family is really important. It's also offered as a free service to our employees and their family members. And it's free because we use some of the state tobacco funds from taxation as well as the tobacco settlement fund that was established many years ago. Some some states use that to build roads. Fortunately, in Texas, we use some of those monies to actually go toward the problem. So at MD Anderson, we use those funds to offer this service free of charge. We offer four levels of care from just information and self-help to motivational interviewing where we try to convince um, uh, folks who come into the program of the importance and the benefits that will be afforded to them if indeed they're able to take this step Third level of care is kind of like a quit line. Um, all states, all Americans have access to a state quit line, and uh, MD Anderson has its own for our patient population. That's the third level of care, where 
Uh, it involves counseling as well as those self-help materials. And then finally, the Cadillac or the high-level um, most successful program is our comprehensive program that involves both counseling as well as access to pharmacotherapies or medicines that can help people deal with that addiction to nicotine and uh, essentially help step them down from that uh, from that substance. And tell me about the success that you've had. So it's it's a it's a, as I said, kind of a state of the art program. Uh, many other cancer centers wish that they could put something like this together. It's a credit to those leaders that they really conceived of such a wonderful program. Um, success rates, um, usually if you try to quit on your own, uh, about 3 to 5% of individuals are successful. So it's really hard to break the addiction to nicotine. With this program and its uh, uh, highest form of, of intervention with both pharmacotherapy as well as counseling, we have success rates at 3 to 6 months and even out to a year on the order of 35 to 45%, which is arguably as well as anyone does. Yeah. Many times folks have to, you know, they, they, they try and they fail and they try and they fail. You can try up to 14 times uh, uh, and uh, still not succeed. But what's important for patients as well as providers to know is that it's not futile. Um, you can be successful. It is a chronic relapsing condition, and so it's not a one-done. It's definitely a sort of thing that you can always come back to. Yeah. And then one of the th- and then finally, I guess one of the things that you have targeted is secondhand smoke, which a lot of people don't necessarily think of firsthand, but you found is is uh, is, is deadly as well. That's right. The uh, smoke-free efforts um, really that's the science behind reducing exposure to secondhand smoke. The Surgeon General uh, told us in 2006 there is no safe level of exposure to secondhand smoke. So if we can have smoke-free homes, smoke-free cars, smoke-free workplaces, smoke-free entertainment uh, venues, then we can reduce the exposure to secondhand smoke. Um, Texas is a little bit behind the game, and Houston is actually one of the strongest uh, places that have had a smoke-free law in place for almost a decade um, that would protect um, employees from secondhand smoke in the workplace. Again, where we work, live, eat, pray, and, and, and be around people. So we know that policy changes behavior, and so smoke-free laws have many consequences in a positive way. They do help people attempt to quit because if you can go an eight-hour shift without smoking, um, that's one step um, to quit. We also know that that's going going to um, continue if they have an evening out to a bar that's smoke-free or a restaurant that's smoke-free, another two hours where they have to abstain from smoking. So we've seen lots of byproducts of policies that change behavior in a good way. We are talking about the end tobacco a moonshot Initiative at MD Anderson Cancer Center with Dr. Ernest Hawk, who is the Vice President and uh, Division Head of Cancer Prevention and Population Sciences, and Jennifer Kofer, the Director of End Tobacco. Uh, one of the things you also focus on is is uh, early detection. This is big, too, to be able to get there and treat it. Yes. Um, you know, th- that's a success of uh, modern screening. So now there are hmm, four or five different types of cancer for which we know Early detection through screening is able to decrease cancer-related mortality. So that was oldest and best established for cervical cancer for women. Uh, Pap smears and now HPV testing can decrease mortality 70-80%. Secondly, mammography for breast cancer decreases the risk of death anywhere by 15-30%, to depending on the study and the population. Third, colorectal cancer screening can decrease death uh, by up to 50% through effective screening. And the newest addition to that roster is lung cancer screening through spiral CT. 
So this is only recommended for high-risk individuals, and high-risk is usually defined as above 50 years of age and with at least a 30-pack-year history of smoking. That is, smoking a pack a day for 30 years, so fairly high risk. But randomized controlled trials of screening versus no screening, so big definitive trials, have been done by the National Cancer Institute and others, and uh, they're associated with a 20% mortality reduction due to lung cancer. So this is one of the ways that we can block the development of lung cancer and its uh, subsequent mortality. But it's, uh, it's important to always remember that tobacco cessation, avoidance of tobacco, is the most effective way. And so what we do at Anderson is offer lung cancer screening with established methodologies. We also are doing ran, uh, studies to try to evaluate other blood-based biomarkers to try to tailor that screening to those who might benefit most And then we offer that in conjunction with tobacco cessation. So really we're bringing all of the preventive and screening services to bear together to try to help. Yeah. Well, I guess that what we've been talking about in in, in the end tobacco um, uh, program is getting in there and stopping it before it starts. Um, And... uh, uh, but then also uh, you're, you do a lot of training or a lot of research and a lot of clinical trials and different things. You're doing a lot in, in, of research and, and, I guess, groundbreaking things with treating people who are coming in, too. Yes, and that was the tobacco treatment program I outlined earlier. But we're, that, that, that works well for people that are make, able to make their way to MD Anderson. But, of course, we want to try to disseminate this program to other centers to try to help them serve their patient populations. And so we have a number of initiatives under the umbrella of Project Teach, which is all about disseminating that knowledge out to others. Um, a couple of really high-risk high communities, one are those with behavioral health disorders, depression, anxiety, they tend to smoke at much higher rates than than the general population, anywhere from two to three fold. So whereas the general population, we're down to anywhere between 12 and 16% as a nation in terms of those who smoke, among folks with um, those with depression, anxiety, mental health disorders, that rate can be as high as 40, 45%. And so that's one of the ways, one of the communities we're reaching out to through Project Teach to try to disseminate best practices in tobacco prevention and cessation out to those uh, communities. Um, We've got a a research project going on now with a number of the state mental health authorities so that we can try to help them help their patients um, break the addiction to nicotine. We found that less than half of substance abuse centers are offering cessation services. So what we do is offer our experts at the tobacco treatment training or at the program at MD Anderson to have a telementoring and online session with mental health professionals throughout Texas. And what this is giving them access to is to ask questions of cases for their hardest cases who are attempting to quit and have other comorbidities they're working with, with behavioral health or any mental health issues. How do we treat that person Um, from medication questions to counseling questions? We have all of our experts available to them um, one hour each week. And so we've been doing this for almost 15 months and have seen great results both in the quality and in the quantity. Um, So that's our desire is to really reach the hardest of the hardest who are still using tobacco. And those with behavioral health um, and mental health disorders are definitely the population we want to focus on. You know, you think of you go to the AA meeting and it's just chocked, full of smoke, just choking smoke. And and I I think it would be scary for somebody who's trying to 
help those people get off of those substances to also take that final thing away. You can't have that either now because that's legal. And that would be for some people a way to help them get off. But it would be scary to have to hold them accountable to that. Yeah. Many, many patients with those um, conditions actually use tobacco to help Mm -hmm. treat their condition. Mm -hmm. Um, They feel calmer when they smoke. And so there's great fear in trying to break that, despite the fact that they, many of them try, up to 40% of patients, of those patients, are trying to quit on an annual basis, but they find it extremely difficult. So this is a dedicated effort to reach out to those communities and the providers that serve them to try to help them realize that, yes, you can live up to your aspiration. Yes, you can overcome uh, tobacco addiction. And, uh, and so that's why that program was put together. We're also attempting to build on the success of our tobacco treatment program by developing a certified provider program, a a training program, not for physicians, but for other health professionals that can uh, assist in the counseling. That'll be a new endeavor. We're going to start in 2017. We're already talking about putting that program together. Um, Other states have them, but there aren't many of those programs. Other states in the north (laughs) have those, but they're not so common in the south. And so we're hoping to be able to put that program in place as well so they can carry the message and the lessons learned out to a broader community. And and when you, when you talk about broader community, very quickly, you're talking global community in many instances too, aren't you? We are. We, we consider our greatest area of responsibility, Houston and Texas, as a state institution. That's where our primary allegiance lies. But there's absolutely no reason not to share this information more broadly. And so we have dedicated efforts in association with cancer centers across the country, uh, and uh, and some of those are even named affiliates of MD Anderson, as well as to the global community. We have some 30, 35 different institutions around the globe that we partner with, and we've got some really innovative and uh, hopefully impactful programs going with uh, sister cancer agencies and government health agencies in Mexico, Colombia, and Peru. Yeah. Well, we've been talking about the End Tobacco um, Moonshot Initiative at MD Anderson Cancer Center. We've been talking to Dr. Ernest Hawk, who is the Vice President of Cancer Prevention and Population Sciences, and Jennifer Kofer, the Director of End Tobacco. If somebody's listening, they want to get involved, they want to end smoking, or they want somebody in their family to stop, or they want to uh, find out more information, where can they get that? Good question. They can go to mdanderson.org slash endtobacco, E-N-D-T-O-B-A-C-C-O. We have a website um, that's dedicated talking about all these initiatives, but they can get our contact information from there. They can also call our 1-800 number and they can route us to the Cancer Prevention or the Moonshots office to get to in tobacco. Um, I do have to give a plug in. If someone is wanting to quit, they can call the 1-800 quit now um, toll-free number um, from any state, any area code. Um, And again, uh, we would love to serve them at MD Anderson. There are some clinical trials open currently that they can inquire about. There's two um, that they can come in to see, or if they're a current patient and they were not told about this program, um, they are more than um, able to come and see us at the tobacco treatment program. Excellent. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. My name is Susie Hanks, and you've been listening to FYI.